0: from Pacifica Radio this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa I am Maliha Razazan This week we speak with prominent Israeli historian Ilan Pape about the recent developments in Israel
1: Why do the governments in the West continue to immunize Israel when uh, this rogue state is now exposed with all its cruelty and brutality why these people are unwilling to impose on Israel sanctions, why they're unwilling to defend the Palestinians. These are all these complex issues which go back to the Christian world's attitude towards Zionism in the first place, Islamophobia, the power of the lobbies, wherever they are, and other factors that we've discussed before. So I think this is a continuation of the exceptionalism that Israel enjoys and the immunity that political elites, not necessarily civil society in the West, is willing to provide it with.
0: Later in the program, we celebrate National Poetry Month with Iraqi-born poet Sinan Antoun reading his poem, Letter to Al-Mutanabbi Street. Al-Mutanabbi, a street made famous for its booksellers and literary cafes, is named after the famous 10th century Iraqi poet. Stay with us. (music) Even by Israel's abysmal standards, provocations against the people of Palestine have seen a dramatic escalation since the arrival of Bibi Netanyahu's new government three months ago. Hundreds of innocent civilians murdered, including many children, an outright anti-Palestinian pogrom in the West Bank that was cheered on by the Minister of Interior, a brutal attack on worshippers, inside one of Islam's holy sites in the middle of Ramadan, as well as statements by a key government official declaring that the Palestinian people simply did not exist. At the same time, a historic wave of protest contesting the new government's attempts to temper with the role of the judiciary claims to defend democracy in the Holy Land without a single mention of the central question of Palestinian civil and human rights. Khalil Bendib asked prominent Israeli historian Ilan Pape for his take on these recent developments.
2: Ilan. Israel has been through and still is in the midst of what looks like the largest, most sustained series of protests in its entire history. Clearly, this movement has little to do with democracy in the broader sense, as it only applies to the settler population and not to the natives of Palestine. Not one sign among the throngs seen on the streets of Israel mentions in any way the status of half the population and Palestine, and that is the Palestinians themselves, why is that not part of the discussion and why do Western media treat that topic as irrelevant to this grand debate about democracy?
1: Yes, so let's start with the first part. Almost half a million Israeli Jews who are have been demonstrating against the current government and its policies, especially its uh, attempt to hijack the judicial system, almost all of them are made of the same cloth, so to speak. This is a group of mainly Jews of European origin or Western origin, some of them came from the United States and Australia, who are secular, although there are some religious people among them, but the vast majority are secular European Jews, if you want, or Ashkenazi Jews, as we call them in Israel. And uh, most of them, I would say, are middle class or upper middle class. And they are demonstrating for maintaining the secular apartheid Israel, which they lived in for uh, more than uh, 70 years and were very happy with. And so what they are demonstrating against is not the apartheid system itself, but the fact that they feel that that particular apartheid system can change in two ways. One, it can become more religious in terms of a religious impact on the public domain, which will affect their way of life, their style of life. And on the other hand, it can also erode the immunity shield that protects them, namely the fact that they can For themselves and for others in the world claim that despite the immorality of the colonization and occupation, we should not forget how liberal and pluralist Israel is in its treatment of the LBGT community and the way that it is really a Western society in the midst of the Arab world. So I think that is what they are fighting for, so to speak, and in that context, Palestinians or Israeli citizens of, of Palestine, or anyone among the more progressive Jews in Israel who would bring uh, or would suggest that there is a connection between the occupation and the oppression of the Palestinians and to the situation in Israel as a whole are ruining the agenda that they want to cover. And as you could probably notice, Khalil, the most important symbol of their demonstration is the huge number of Israeli flags. Now, for your second question, that's a very good question. And first of all, I have to state the fact that you're right. I'm watching very carefully the mainstream media in the United States, and Britain in particular, but I have no doubt this is true about other countries in the West. They seem to accept that these are demonstrations fighting for democracy. The fact that, you know, mainstream media... That at least, even if it was not very critical of Israeli policy, seemed to be aware of the occupation and the colonization, do not make this link, can be the result of either of two explanations. Either they cannot make the connection as a logical connection, which I really doubt, given the fact that people in the mainstream media are not idiots and are educated and know the world. Or... They are still, in one way or another, following the Israeli liberal Zionist narrative for various reasons, whether they are intimidated by Israel, whether they are Islamophobic, whether they are racist, whether they are still believing somehow that fantasy Israel, the Israel of the only democracy, the Middle East, can really come back and exist, although it never did exist. I mean, it's much easier to answer your first question. One can only be bewildered by your second question and, and agree with, with the, you know, what you've described. But I suppose it is connected to the wider question: Why do the governments in the West continue to immunize Israel when uh, this rogue state is now exposed with all its cruelty and brutality? And we, we discussed it before in your program, Halil, why these people are unwilling to impose on Israel sanctions, why they're unwilling to defend the Palestinians. These are all these complex issues which go back to the Christian world's attitude towards Zionism in the first place, Islamophobia, the power of the lobbies, wherever they are, and other factors that we've discussed before. So I think this is a continuation of the exceptionalism that Israel enjoys and the immunity that the political elites, not not necessarily civil society in the West, is willing to provide it with.
2: They're much more interested in Ukrainian victims, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. For the sake of discussion, let's pretend for a minute that the notion of democracy can be examined Within the narrow confines of Israeli citizenship and ignore half of the population between Jordan River and Mediterranean Sea, as the Israelis and their supporters in the West are wont to do. But even then, the question of minority rights remains. When it comes to minority rights, democracy should not consist in a situation, as the old joke goes, in a situation where two wolves and one lamb are voting on what's for dinner tonight. According to Zionists and their supporters on paper, at least Palestinian citizens of Israel who represent roughly 20% of the population, are duly included in Israel's democracy since they have the right to vote. In your opinion, what is wrong with this picture?
1: Yes, there are other examples in history of regimes where people were allowed to vote and be elected, such as uh, Romania under Ceausescu, and yet nobody ever dreamt of calling Ceausescu's Romania a democracy. The very act of voting or the act of being elected does not by itself provide an essence of democracy. It is adopting the formality of democracy, but it's not the real litmus paper or the real examination we should carry to find out whether society is democratic or not. The nature of Israel, as it was exemplified in the constitutional law that Israel passed in the summer of 2018, is that Palestinians do not consist a nation, and only the Jews consist a nation. In fact, according to the Israeli democracy, there isn't an Israeli nation either. In my ID, The Israeli idea, it's written that my nationality is Jewish, not Israeli. And in my Palestinian friend's idea, the nationality is defined as Arab. So it shows you that this is, first of all, a Jewish nation state, according to Zionism. And therefore, anyone who is not a Jew is not part of the nation. And according to that idea, if you're not part of the nation then you are not receiving everything that the people of the nation receive from the state. In other words, if you are not part of the Jewish nation, despite the fact that you are a citizen, you have to be a second-rate or third-rate citizen. You're almost treated as an immigrant who's just arrived with no rights because you don't belong to the common good, as we call it in Republican uh, theories. the, The philosophical side of it. But more practically, what is really important is the fact that in order to be a full citizen in Israel, you don't only have to be Jewish, you also have to be part of the army. Israel is a military with a state. And if you're not part of the military or the security service, in fact, if you are part of the enemy list on the security service, and every Palestinian citizen of Israel potentially is an enemy in the eyes of the Israeli Secret Service, then you are not going to not only not get the basic rights, you're not going to get the particular privileges that the Jewish society gets as well. And this translates to budgets, to infrastructure, to the right to have political views and occupational issues, and more than anything else, you live as a Palestinian citizen a very precarious life, because at any given minute, according to emergency laws, that can be enacted in a minute, you can be regarded as the fifth column and uh, lose your freedom
2: and worth. A villa in the jungle is how Israeli Jews and their supporters abroad idealize their settler colonial state, an outpost of civilization in the midst of an Arab wilderness. The secular, largely Ashkenaz, as you were explaining, that group are used to being increasingly in the minority within Israel proper, even among Jews, but that has not kept them until now from retaining control. Are the secular opponents of Netanyahu's government worried that left to its own devices, this idealized villa with all the modern comforts will be reclaimed by the surrounding jungle if the religious Jews took control? It's part of
1: the fear. I think it's part of the fear of if you want, Arabizing the European Jewish state, which comes out of your description. But I think their fear is is different. I really think their fear is that the way that they succeeded in reconciling their self-image of themselves, and talking about the particular group that you referred to, their self-image of being Westerners, democratic and liberals on the one hand, but on the other hand, are taking part in managing one of the most brutal occupation colonization on earth, on the other, they felt that they know how to navigate within this paradox and that they succeeded in maintaining Israel's international image because of their very successful way of selling to the world the impossible ideas that Israel is an enlightened colonizer or a progressive ethnic cleanser. And they don't trust the religious and right-wing people to be able to do this. And that would mean not only that they might feel unwelcome in Israel, it means that they might face the fact that they cannot claim anymore that they have succeeded in squaring the circle. I will give you one important example, which I think the mainstream media will miss. I'm sure will miss. People, even those who are critical of Israel, talk rightly, and I'm sure you're familiar with the term pinkwashing, the way that Israel uses Tel Aviv as one of the world's, and it is one of the world's gay capital, to whitewash its crimes against the Palestinian people. What people don't notice is that pinkwashing inside Israel is far more important. The pinkwashing allows these half a million Israelis who are now demonstrating to say to themselves, okay, we're killing Palestinian children. We are taking over the land. We are committing crimes against humanity, against them. But Tel Aviv is one of the gay capital of the world. What can be more progressive than that? And this domestic pinkwashing is in danger for two reasons. One is because the crimes would be much more explicit now and much more transparent, although from a Palestinian point of view, the crimes have already been horrific not that they would be worse. They're just as bad as they were. But on the other hand, these religious ultra Orthodox Jews and their allies might also clamp down on Tel Aviv uh, (laughs) as a gay capital. You see? So I think they're really losing all these which I predicted I don't know if in conversation with you but I I have an article I wrote it in 1999 I predicted that all these charades charades all these juggling, all these attempts to reconcile the irreconcilable that the liberal Zionists were very good at from the beginning of the Zionist project until today would lose their power and validity. And it won't work anymore. When will it happen? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a prophet, but I can see them losing one ploy after the other. So they rely on Christian fundamentalists who, who don't care about that, they're losing the Jewish communities around the world. That's very, very clear. They're losing some of the friends as well. And had it not been for corrupt Arab regimes that are normalizing relationship with Israel and Muslim countries that are afraid to confront Israel, I think the situation for them would have been even more difficult. But for the time being, they cannot see the collapse. But the collapse is there. That doesn't mean, by the way, as we know from apartheid South Africa, that the last phase of a rogue state is not very dangerous to its major victims. The state becomes fiercer, more barbaric, more brutal. So this is a very worrying moment in history. But if you look a little bit beyond the horizon, I think we are watching the last chapter of the Zionist project.
2: So as you're talking about, this democracy debate does not really apply to the entire demos of all residents in Israel, Palestine, just the Jewish citizens. As we're seeing as well in the United States, there's this deepening chasm between roughly two halves of the country, one side that seems to lean in a more theocratic direction, more intolerant, uh, less secular, doesn't believe in separation of church and state, and another side which is frightened by that. Over the years, I've heard more than one secular Israeli draw a parallel between Israel's religious Jews and especially the ultra-Orthodox, who tend to have larger families and are a growing demographic threat for the secular state and the Palestinians. According to them, the ultra-Orthodox are just like the Islamists, that is, superstitious and authoritarian. You see this uh, ideological split as a major factor in the struggle between the two sides as we speak?
1: I think there's a bit of an exaggeration and an intentional one in the propaganda that is brought forward by those who arrange all these demonstrations and those who represent these liberal Zionist political parties which are now fighting Netanyahu on the streets and elsewhere. It's very easy to cast the blame for what's wrong with Israel on the ultra-Orthodox Jews. Yes, it is true. They would like to see the um, public domain more theocratic, if you want. And definitely, they have a value system, which is different from those who who live in Tel Aviv. But they are not really the problem. They've never been really the problem. The problem is that actually the secular Jews are the ones who colonized Palestine to begin with, ethnically cleansed the Palestinians in 1948, ethnically cleansed almost half a million, if not more, Palestinians since 1967. This was all done by the people who are now demonstrating in Tel Aviv. Let's not forget this. Their leaders are ex-generals who committed war crimes in Gaza and elsewhere. Therefore, it's very easy for them to think that the problem are these ultra-Orthodox Jews and because they don't serve in the army. I don't want them to serve in the army anyway. But this is a kind of a distraction, I think, from the real issue that the demonstrators don't want to face. So it's very easy for them to say, oh, the problem are all these weird ultra-Orthodox Jews. Yes, who definitely are milking the Israeli budget in order to maintain their learning centers, improve their habitation and so on. They're still the poorest, uh, with the Palestinians, they're still the poorest sections in Israeli society. Most Orthodox Jews live in deep poverty, when you say that as well. So I don't think that this is the real schism. If you read Haaretz, for instance, the liberal Zionist paper, you would think that this is the real schism. I don't think so. I, I really, it comes back to the issue of you are ruining for us you, and this is not just the Orthodox Jews. These are the Mizrahi Jews, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, and the settlers, for 700,000, we should remember, in the West Bank. You are ruining fantasy Israel for us. We are respected in the world as a high-tech democratic state. And we are, for some reason, we are forgiving or nobody cares or what we do to the Palestinians. But you are endangering this shield that protects us from sanctions and from becoming a pariah state.
2: At the same time, it seems from what I read that more than half of the country is self-identifying as religious of one sort or another, perhaps not ultra-orthodox, but orthodox or conservative. And that's more than half of the half of the country. The irony of building a state based on religious affiliation while lamenting that it's actually turning and maybe actually turning into a theocracy seems to be lost on Israel's supporters. In other words, is maintaining the trappings of democracy inside the tent sustainable while simultaneously meeting meeting out apartheid rule outside the tent, as you were just mentioning?
1: I agree, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're you absolutely true. The idea that you can create the Jewish secular state is as ridiculous as trying to create a secular Muslim state or a secular Christian state. These paradoxical political outfits do not exist in reality. They exist on paper, but not on reality. And you're right. If if your identity is religion, then don't be surprised that one day those who are really part of the religion would ask you, "What, what is your Judaism? That's what they ask them. What is your Judaism? As I said, they can't even say we have an Israeli nationality. They don't. They have a Jewish nationality. It's kind of exposing the basic uh, paradoxes that usually are hidden because Israel is able to create or to cement a society around the idea that there is a, a, a joint enemy from the outside. This is why Netanyahu triggered these last events, creating this kind of narrative that Iran is now using all fronts against Israel, he hopes that this would recreate the consensus, that the people would re-embrace, would go back to the warm embrace of the consensus. It worked for him, by the way, in 2012, if you remember. 2011, there were huge Israeli demonstrations against the cost of living, if you remember. Yes, yes. It was a social protest. And then he went to a, a very cruel operation in Gaza, and the protest was over. He's trying to do the same now. We haven't seen the the end of it, unfortunately. If the demonstration will continue, he will look for a wider escalation. Because, and maybe he's right from his point of view, because I think that most of those who organize these demonstrations would fall into the idea that we are now at war and we should put aside our divisions and work together to defend Israel. It hasn't worked for him with this escalation. People did not buy into it, and that is very worrying because it means that he would try something far more dangerous in terms of escalation. In
2: 1961, in desperation, the French generals in Algeria attempted to overthrow the government and cancel whatever was left of French democracy as the only way for a settler colonial state to survive. But the goal managed to prevail in the end and defeat this putsch. As we speak, reports are now emerging about how crucial undisclosed Israeli collusion with Trump's 2016 presidential campaign seems to have helped bring Donald Trump to power. We have also heard about the Pegasus program and others that seem to penetrate certain governments in the West and the liberal democracies of the West. Do you see a danger of Israel's turn to outright fascism spreading to the USA, or is that overstating the danger?
1: It really depends who will be in power in Israel. I think that if the present coalition in Israel is in power and looking at their network of allies like Urban in Hungary and uh, other kind of uh, dictators around the world, And with the neo-right that has now come to power in Finland and the neo-rights in various European countries, I would say that this is not an exaggerated scenario because the formula is very clear. The more fascist the world, the less it would care about what Israel is doing and may see an extreme right-wing Israel as an ally. So it it makes sense. It it definitely makes sense. And I'm glad you're bringing it up because sometimes when we are in Palestine, we we tend to forget the more global context here. Not everything that is going to happen in Palestine depends just about the balance of power between Palestinians and Israelis. Very much the overall struggle in the world between fascists and anti-fascists, between people who believe in social justice and uh, people who believe in uh, a system that ignores social justice, all these battles that are fought both globally, regionally, and locally, definitely create a constellation of forces that would impact the reality in Palestine. I think many young Palestinians, by the way, are aware of it. I don't remember a period like the last five years of intersectionality as I see it today. Namely, just to explain what I mean by this, that the young Palestinian activists are now connected to other struggles, indigenous struggles, labor struggles, liberation struggles, even more than the PLO was at the height of these international solidarity in the 1970s was. This is quite encouraging. And this transnational solidarity that puts Palestine in a very central place is the kind of attempt to be ready for the very terrible scenario that you are describing with the center a change in American, the nature of the American regime and where it could
2: go. Yes, we saw it, especially in the time of the Black Lives Matter movement. Exactly. Where all of a sudden Palestine was mentioned in demonstrations. And like, and like these current demonstrations in Israel where it's absent, It was present here in the United States. It was really something to see. Absolutely. Uh, But even 10, 12 years ago, even before this current crisis in Israel, things were deteriorating rapidly. This idea of democracy for Jews that it insulated from the wider context, even that was fraying your own experiences. For example, somebody who is a principal dissident scholar, You have at one point found it necessary to exile yourself in order to protect both your academic freedom and your family's safety. And I'm sure you're not an isolated case. How difficult would you say is the life of people of conscience in Israel who decide to resist the injustice of settler colonialism? And is it becoming impossible or increasingly difficult as the country drifts farther and farther to the very far right?
1: I think you're right. I think people who would now try to follow in uh, the footsteps of people like myself, who were part of the struggle in the early part of this century, would face uh, a very hostile, I would say even dangerous environment, both in terms of government and police policy and the society around them. But I think, and I talked to some of the Leading young activists in the very small but existing, what I should say, anti-Zionist groups within the Jewish society in Israel, they are aware of two things. And I think that gives them strength. And hopefully, this would also help them to increase their numbers. One is they are fully aware of the difference of what they experience, as harsh as it is, and what the Palestinians are experiencing. And that gives them a, a perspective of the sacrifices that they are making compared to those of the Palestinians, which for me was very important at the time when I faced these kind of, of dangers. And secondly, they are also aware of their standing around the world, that there might be a, a tiny persecuted minority inside the Jewish society in Israel, but they're very welcome in many, many sections in the world, whereas the Israeli compatriots, if you want, are less and less welcome in many, many parts of the world. And that gives them a lot of strength. So I think this is an interesting group to follow. I think it's also a bit different from my generation. I think most of them are really third-generation settlers, if you want. They really feel also part of the country because their parents have been there, their grandparents. And they really wish to live in a country which is different. But also they're fighting for their own country. It's not just fighting for the Palestinian rights, which is a very important part of what they're doing. They're also fighting for their own future and those of their children and grandchildren. It's the time when it seems, and that's what we feel in the one-state democratic initiative I'm part of, that the agendas of the Palestinian liberation struggle and the agenda of these anti-Zionist Jews is not that different anymore. It's really fighting for the same thing the dismantling of the Zionist state, the creation of a genuine democracy, rectifying the past evil, first and foremost, by allowing the refugees to return, reintegrating to the Arab world and the Middle East, and hopefully creating something that would also radiate and influence positively the rest of the Arab world.
2: Yes, as you just mentioned, the mood is changing, even here in the United States, which is a bastion of support for Israel. According to a Zogby poll, a recent poll, more than half of Democrats, Democratic voters, apparently seem to sympathize more with Palestinians for the first time than, than with the Israelis. Remarkable. Indeed. Indeed. One, one footnote I was curious about. In the U.S., censorship has made it very difficult for anti-Zionists like yourself to be reviewed, publicized, and freely circulated. How are your books circulated in Israeli bookstores and libraries? Is censorship there as bad as it is here?
1: Yes, unfortunately, we have two main uh, chain of bookshops, and they uh, boycott uh, my book quite uh, publicly. They said that. We have few alternative bookshops where one can get my books. There is a funny situation in East Jerusalem, as you know, it's annexed to Israel, but It kind of has, in certain things, its own kind of cultural life. And it has two, three excellent bookshops, so people can buy my books. Also in East Jerusalem, which officially is under Israeli annexation, so you don't need to cross checkpoints and so on to get to these bookshops, so Israelis can get them there. And of course, there is the internet. But yes, oh, definitely. This is the paradox. It's not just about me. Some books with other authors like me, because the main argument of these bookshops is that the books are not very important and not very interesting. <laughs> and well, yet, out, they... here,
2: out here, the excuse is that they won't sell.
1: Yeah, they won't sell. <laughs> ah, so... <laughs> it's really ridiculous, of course. It's that, all about uh,
2: capitalism. It has nothing to do with uh, Yeah,
1: it's all only business. It's a business. Uh... But uh, that's okay. That's okay. I'm very happy, especially about uh, The Ethnic Cleansing. It came out in Hebrew for the Wonderful. first time. After wow, I
2: didn't know it wasn't. Yeah, Hebrew it's, it's a new thing. Out. Amazing. A,
1: a, a very brave independent publisher published it. It sold quite well. And I think it was the first time that, at least for a new generation of Israeli Hebrew readers, that they came across my work and... Uh, some of them reacted very positively, yeah, and uh, I, I think they were enlightened by, by that, not knowing. We'll open what
2: some happened. eyes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Ilan Pape, you've written a seminal book titled The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, in which you documented how Zionists went about emptying what is called today Israel of most of its indigenous population, but how even today there remains a sizable Palestinian segment of this population which managed to not be expelled. And that is a major source of frustration for Israel, and especially the far right that is now in power and being contested in the streets. Since Netanyahu came back, we have seen a dramatic escalation of brutality. Hundreds of Palestinians murdered since the start of the year. A pogrom incited and cheered on by a senior Israeli cabinet member has taken place in Huayra, a brutal attack inside the most sacred mosque in Jerusalem in the middle of Ramadan, and the very denial of the existence of Palestinians by key members of the new government. When you witness all these provocations, what do you suppose is the end game for the far right? Is it finishing the job started in 1948 of emptying the land of its original inhabitants?
1: These policies are not, I think, intending to create a massive ethnic cleansing as had been executed in 1948. It's a mixture of few things. One is the need to police millions of people who refuse to be colonized, occupies, and brutalized by the regime. So the policing becomes more brutal, become more harsh, and less inhibited in terms of killing, including children and women. So that's part of it. Part of it, it's an extreme way of trying to police millions of people who refuse to be colonized. The second part of it is the hope that there will be an incremental kind of downsizing of the population. So it is, in many ways, both an incremental genocide and an incremental ethnic cleansing, in terms that the policies does not mind at all, and in fact uh, would think that part of it's collateral damage would be that people would leave as a result of these harsh policies. And this is also accompanied by policies of banishment and expulsion that sometimes is also executed. So yes, I I think that we can go back to the very wise words and very unfortunately wise words of the late scholar of settler colonialism, Patrick Wolfe, who said that settler societies execute against native people the logic of the elimination of the native we've seen it with the white settlers in in north america the white settlers in australia and new zealand and in other places so yes unfortunately i think that this is a structural policy that means that an incrementally continued ethnic cleansing would be part of the policing and therefore I don't think we're going to witness, although I don't know, God God forbid, the same kind of mass expulsion that we've seen in 1948, or even the less but quite extensive expulsion we've seen in 1967. But the Israeli security forces with these kinds of politicians Mm -hmm. see it as a way of life, of harassing the, the, the population, of oppressing it, leading in some places, if not to its expulsion, that to enclaving it in very small communities as part of a policing that would allow the Jewish state to forget about their existence. Of course, this is a ploy and a strategy that will never succeed.
2: Seeing the type of characters who've come to power, people like uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, who deny the very existence of the Palestinians, and who seem to worship people like forget his name, the guy who killed Goldstein. Goldstein, yeah. Goldstein, who killed forty people inside. Yeah,
1: a, Goldstein, yes.
2: A mosque in, in, in al- al- Hebron. Or, Halim, or, Halim, yes, al- Seeing these types, at least partly in power, what would keep people like that? From actually executing a worst-case scenario where you escalate things, you provoke the Palestinians, Palestinians, and return some hot heads who would do some drastic things and kill a lot of innocent uh, civilians in Israel, and to the point where it would escalate, and and the authorities would just decide, okay, this is our chance to to complete the job we started in 1948. What kind of pressures from outside or what do you see as a as a break on such a catastrophic scenario, given that all the power is there in their hands? I mean, military, police, etc. What would keep extremists like that from going for a maximum scenario like that?
1: The good news are also the bad news. I don't think that they are more powerful than the Israeli security apparatuses. As I said to you, I I still think Israel is a military with a state Mm. rather than a state with a military. And we've seen it in in the way the army is handling the situation contrary to the wishes of these two extreme uh, ministers. I'm not saying it might not change, but I don't think they have the power to override the Israeli uh, security apparatuses. Why did I say it's not only good news? It's also bad news because... Let's say that I'm right and they won't be able to implement most of their extreme visions. We are still left with the same regime that kills, oppresses, expels, and so on. So it's coming back to your first question. Yes, there is now a battle in Israel between the previous Israel and the new Israel with all these also extreme scenarios of these right-wing lunatics. But from a Palestinian perspective, I don't think the differences are that stark, are that that big. It's the same policies. There's a difference in the rhetoric. There's a difference in the levels of lunacy. I agree. And therefore, it's dangerous. I fully agree with you. But I still think that the most existential danger for the Palestinians are the Israeli military establishment and the security establishment, who has, by the way, quite a lot of national religious settlers in it anyway. But I think this is the the danger. So rather than thinking of a scenario that these two, for example, would be able to create a situation by which they destroy Al-Aqsa or Haram al-Sharif, I'm much more worried about the attempt of the present captains of the Israeli military apparatus and secret services and so on to drag the United States and the world into direct confrontation with Iran. Yes. I think that's far more dangerous for all of us. Again, I'm not underrating the the lunacy of these people and what they can do and what would like to do. But let me give you an example from today. These two ministers demanded in the last days of Ramadan every morning the Jewish prayers would go into Haram al-Sharif. The security service said no way and there will be no Jewish prayers or Jewish visitors to that part of the holy sites. So it gives you a good example where the balance of power right now lies. Again, we have to watch and see whether this is going to change.
2: So, what about that question of Israel trying mightily to bring the U.S. into direct conflict with Iran? How do you see that evolving since Trump got this country out of the accord, and Biden is refusing to do much to get it back into some sort of agreement with Iran? Go, go. Iran being also in the in the throes of a very extreme hardline government. Mm-hmm. That also needs some external threat to keep going.
1: Yes, I think that ploy is is dangerous, and one can see how it unfolds. But what at this moment in time, I can see how it doesn't work, rather than how it works. There's a great disappointment in Israel. I think from the way that both the Hezbollah and the Hamas, if you notice, were not taking part in the present escalation. They were very careful not to be part. You know, the missiles that were shot from Lebanon were shot by a Palestinian group. The missiles that have been shot from the Gaza Strip in the last two years are shot by the Islamic Jihad, not by the Hamas. Iran, instead of reacting to the Israeli assassination of, you know, nuclear engineers and killing Iranian soldiers and advisors on Syrian soil, has not retaliated. Instead, it decided to strengthen an alliance with Saudi Arabia, brought the uh, conflict in Yemen to at least a temporary close by creating a dialogue between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. Uh, So I think that is not working for Israel because Iran, as I see it, I don't know, you know a bit more on this than I do. I think that surprisingly, the harsh domestic policies in Iran And the attempt from within to challenge them may have, I don't know if that's the main reason, but I see the result. I'm not sure about the analysis. The Iranian regional policy has become much more pragmatic and realpolitik than it was, let's say, a few years ago. And uh, it creates a condition, especially I think the alliance with Saudi Arabia, it creates a reality in the Middle East which will make it very difficult to justify an American assault uh, itself on Iran and even an alliance with Israel to it. I think you will need a really a right-wing president like Trump in the White House for all these Iranian clever moves not to work. And then, then America could be dragged into it. But again, I'm not sure America's NATO allies uh, want this, they are enjoying, and I say it very cynically, they're enjoying the war that they finally have since the Second World War in the Ukraine, where they don't have to fight, and the Russophobic sentiments come back to power. It would be difficult for Israel to, to achieve that. They want to do that, but it would be very difficult for them to do this again, unless there is a dramatic kind of shift in American policy, which We all did not predict what would have happened in 2016, and it did. Will Israel be involved in such a radical change again in America in 2024 is also something to follow.
0: Ilan Pape is the director of European Center of Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter and author of many books, on the Middle East and on the Palestine question, including his seminal work, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He spoke with Khalil Bendit from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: 5th 2007, a car bomb exploded on Al Mutanabbi Street in Baghdad. More than 30 people were killed and more than 100 wounded. Al Mutanabbi Street, the historic center of Baghdad book selling, holds bookstores and outdoor book stalls, cafes and stationery shops. The street has been the heart and soul of Baghdad's literary and intellectual community. Here is Sinan Antoun, an Iraqi poet, reading his poem, A Letter to Al-Mutanabbi Street, excerpted from the book Al-Mutanabbi Street Starts Here.
3: letter to Al-Mutanabbi street. You're right. Your words are still wings of light, always carrying you to us, sometimes carrying us to you. And your name is a green tattoo on Baghdad's tired face, your street a forehead of a body beheaded every morning. Just another chapter in the saga of blood and ink you knew so well. I cannot lie to you. I'm quite pessimistic. We are all still etching on the walls of this cave, which is thousands of years long, signs we keep reinterpreting, and myths about a future world where we don't devour one another, and where the sun is friendly and the seas cannot inherit our fever. Some of us are digging a deeper grave, about to embrace us all. They too have their engravings, maps, philosophers and books. We can only keep dreaming of a shore for the wind and dig wells in the dark with nails of silence and solitude. We will weave an ocean out of ink for our myths and out of words a sail or a shroud vast enough for us all. Every book is a well around which we sit and drink to your health and try to live like you did with death and after.
2: That was Iraqi poet Sinan Antun reading his poem, A Letter to El Mutanabbi Street. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.